Thanks for joining us as we explore the book of James, wisdom for the everyday stuff of life. Doxa Church is a family of servant missionaries who make disciples of Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. For more information, visit doxa-church.com. We are in James 3, verse 13. Going to look all up to 18 today. If you've been with us, you know where we're going. If you're new with us, we're walking through a series around the book of James, which is wisdom literature in the New Testament, specifically wisdom for the everyday stuff of life. Uh, if you remember last week, we talked about the, the power of the tongue to build up or to tear down and that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So if we want to get control of our tongue, we've got to have a heart change because it's the heart that produces the words. And so hopefully that spoke to you as we can find in the good news of Jesus, uh, the means by which our hearts can be changed by God, and we can speak in different ways. Let's read together verses 13 to 18 because what James now is going to talk about is that that heart change that produces new words uh, is really all about getting wisdom uh, that enables us to live a new life. And so let's ask the question with James, who is wise? Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The question is, who is wise? Well, the way you know that you have gospel wisdom is that it produces gospel fruit. Gospel wisdom produces gospel fruit. So today what I want us to do is ask, do we have gospel wisdom as evidenced by the fruit of our life? And so there's going to be a, both a, asking what is wisdom and how do we know if we have it, but then looking at our own lives and saying, what's going on inside of us? And the question I want to join in with James is asking, who is wise and understanding among you, among us? Now, how do I know if I have godly wisdom or if I have worldly wisdom? Because here he's going to put the two side by side, worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. How do I know? James says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So the way we know is by what's going on inside of us and what's coming out of us. We can do this by asking three questions. We're going to ask why, what, and where this morning. Why, what, and where? Why do I want wisdom? Where, what does it produce, and where do I go to get it? Okay, why? We'll start with that. Why do we want it? The question I want to ask you is, what's motivating you? Why do you want wisdom? I trust that you do, otherwise you wouldn't be here in this series. You wouldn't want some teaching, otherwise you wouldn't be sitting in the room. Maybe you're a guest with us. This is the first time you've been in a room like this, and this is kind of new for you. And we, you know, maybe a friend invited you, you thought there was something that would be helpful for you, maybe. Maybe they convinced you there'd be something helpful for you. But let me just ask, whether it's here in this room, or when you go to school, or you're uh, going to work, what's motivating you to go to those places to do those things? What's the fundamental desire of your heart for why you chase after these things in the world? 
And in particular, what, what, what is it that you most are driven by? What passion or affection is pushing you to chase after, in this case, wisdom? Why do we want wisdom? And we live in a very, very educated part of the world. In fact, we're one of the most educated cities in the entire United States and even North America. And uh, that's a great thing. I'm thankful that we have that. But for some, it may be uh, driven not by pure motives. It may be driven by a desire to get knowledge or intelligence for ill purposes. Uh, The thing I want you to wrestle with is what is your purpose? What is your desire for gaining more knowledge? James uses this phrase, meekness of wisdom. In fact, uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on that and just unpacking motive for why we would want wisdom. Okay, and let me just pause and say, it's very possible to be very educated and be an educated fool. It really is. In fact, Scripture actually says knowledge can puff up and make you full of pride. And pride is putting you in an opposition to God because you're saying, I don't need you and I don't need anyone else. James uses this word meekness to describe the kind of wisdom that, or the heart of wisdom that is from God. Remember in chapter 1, verse 5, he started by saying, if you want wisdom, you have to actually acknowledge that you need it, and then you've got to ask for the right source, which is God, to give it. And then 21, verse 21 in chapter 1, he said it's actually a prerequisite for receiving the gospel because you have to actually come to a place of realizing that you're in need, that you actually don't have all it takes to save yourself. You have to look outside yourself and find it in the work and person of Jesus Christ. And so here he's saying at the heart of wisdom, in fact, if we were to say like, how do I know this is godly wisdom, gospel wisdom? Well, you'd know at the heart of it is meekness. The why is different than the world's why. Well, what is that why? Well, first of all, we have to describe what meekness is. And when you hear meekness, you might hear weakness, but that's not what you should hear Meekness is something different than weakness. Meekness is basically putting yourself in humble submission to God and acceptance of the circumstances you find yourself in in life. Now, I want to clarify, this is not a resignation to fate. This is not a, oh, woe is me and there's nothing I can do and I just got to live with the situation I'm in. No, a gospel meekness has a hope that God's going to make all things right and does not live as a victim of its circumstances. In fact, meekness is strength under control. It's having the, the power to do either great good or great harm and choosing to submit that strength or power for the good of another. That's what meekness is. Of course, Jesus, the best picture of meekness because though being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, Paul tells us in, in Philippians 2, but he made himself nothing taking on the form of a servant. He didn't become less powerful. He just held back his power and used it for the good of others. That's at the heart of what meekness is. Have you guys seen the movie Hackshaw Ridge? Anybody seen that? Okay, if you haven't, I'm going to destroy it for you, so I'm sorry you had time to watch it. It's too late. Uh, no, I won't. I'm not going to throw anything out. You, nothing's going to surprise you. But it tells the story of Desmond Doss, who is a con- uh, basically a Congressional Medal of Honor uh, a winner. He was awarded the, the Medal of Honor in World War II. If, uh, do you guys know what he's known for? He's a conscientious abductor. He never wanted to pick up a gun. 
And he, 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 if, you, if you saw the movie, there's a key scene when he was a boy, when he's having a fight with his brother, and in, in his anger, picks up a brick and smashes his brother over the head with it, and his brother drops down as if he were dead. It looks like he kills him in the moment. The parents come out and rush to grab him and bring him inside, and we thankfully find out he isn't dead, but... Desmond starts to trail off into another part of the house and finds himself, I think it's in the dining room, where on the wall is a poster with the Ten Commandments and the camera kind of finds the the spot that says, uh, thou shalt not murder. And in that moment, you see a boy realize that he's got the strength in him to kill somebody. And and, and he makes a, a, a really a vow. I will never do this again. And that's what, it's the commandment of God and his particular application of it that leads him to say, I want to go into the war so I can save lives, but I'm not going to take a life in doing it. And he becomes a medic who saves 75 soldiers on the front line of battle by dragging them out one after another. And if you saw the movie, they, they, they set up boot camp making him out to be, at least in the eyes of his fellow soldiers, a wimp. But he's not. In fact, he proves to be the strongest one amongst them because he's the one who's willing to face the bullets over and over and over again to rescue his fellow soldiers while they're all running out, leaving everybody. It's a beautiful picture of meekness, the ability to do great good because he wasn't a wimp. He was incredibly strong, but he used that strength in a way that gave life to others, saved life for others. It's interesting There's a great opportunity to see wisdom show up in the form of meekness in the very beginning of the story of God in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. And Eve in particular, if you remember, after they've been clearly given the command by God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, after they've been told that they have been given authority, dominion in a sense, on behalf of God over the earth to to exercise that kind of authority that brings flourishing to life and accomplishes that great cultural mandate that we've been talking about the last few weeks of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with the glory of God through image bearers that know how to work the land and take care of creation in a way that really shows what God's like. She has that power. She has that authority. And the evil one comes to tempt her and says, God knows that when you eat of that tree, you're just going to become like him. You're not going to really die. You're you're actually going to be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you don't need him and you don't need his word. You don't need to listen to him. And in a moment where Eve could exercise meekness, which is taking authority over a situation and, and, and honoring God and submitting to him and saying, no, God knows what he's doing, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust the situation he put me in is a better one than the one that you want me to self-create. But she doesn't believe God. She believes the tempter. And it's interesting because when she looks at the tree, what does it look like? Remember, it's desirable for, desirable for what? Making one wise. Okay, that's worldly wisdom right there. That's the beginning of the end because what is fundamentally going on there is she's saying, I can find my wisdom outside of God, outside of God's commands, outside of relationship with God, and therefore I'm going to take matters into my own hands. This worldly wisdom at the core right there. And in fact, what she wanted, and I want you to think about yourself and what you want. She wanted radical independence instead of dependence on God and interdependence on one another. Think about your pursuit of knowledge or wisdom. Is it so that you can say, I don't really need anybody? Worldly wisdom. 
She also chose self-actualization. Instead of finding her identity and what God said was true of her and what God wanted her to do, she wanted to look outside of God's word and outside of God's purposes for why he made her to find her identity. Think about how you seek to find a sense of identity in this world. So show meekness that says, I want to find it in God's ways and submission to his word. And then she chose self-rule over submission. Instead of submitting to God, she wanted to be able to be her own God. Think about that in your own life. Are you you're the type of person saying, I just don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I want, I want to be able to be in charge. I want to be my own boss. And you know what? We have a lot of startups in this region, and that's a good thing to start up new companies and, and think through how to create new means to, to f- create human flourishing and to really bless our world. But if the motive is so that you don't have to report to anybody, then that is not meekness, which will not lead to godly wisdom. So ask yourself, why do you do what you do? And as I was working through this in my own kind of life and thinking through, why do I do some of the things I do? Why do, why do I pursue knowledge? Why do I pursue hard work? What, what, what's the motive behind that? I was brought to Proverbs 9, verse 10, which I think is a key to all of this, where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of holy one is insight. The fear of the Lord is not like you're afraid of him so you run away. It's a fear that's an awe and a reverence. This is the holy God who is holy other, who, who deserves utmost respect and honor, who deserves all of our worship. This is who we're talking about. That I wake up in the morning and say, your mercies are new every morning because I don't deserve to have the life I have. I don't deserve to have the privileges I have. I don't deserve the grace you've given me. All that I have and all that I am is a gift from you, and I am still alive today because of your grace. Have you ever met somebody who was in perfect shape and they just dropped dead one day? I've had friends that that's happened to, and you're like, what is going on? And here's the reality. Every single breath you take is a gift from God. Do you see that? Do you know that? Do you, do you sit in awe of life given to you every day as a gift from God? That's reverence. That's awe. That's the fear of the Lord. And when you have that, when you know that, and not just know about him, but you become acquainted with God in your life, you begin to know God. And maybe there's some of you in the room who have never really met him. You really don't walk with him on a daily basis. You don't engage in a relationship. And I'm telling you, if you will come to know him through Jesus and begin to interact with him in, in real ways, real honest ways, you will have the kind of fear and awe that says he is so worthy of me submitting to him. That's meekness. When you come to the fear of God and the knowledge of the Holy One, not just ideas about God, but you become acquainted with God. See, here's the deal. You cannot come into a relationship with God and not be changed. You just can't. It changes you. He changes you. And that leads to meekness because when you come to really know Him and know what He's like, you're humbled. And you want to submit. There's no one better at running your life than him. And that's at the heart of godly wisdom. But see, pride is at the heart of worldly wisdom. Pride runs away from God. Meekness runs into the hands of God. Pride tries to avoid God at all costs. Meekness says, I can't do it without him. Thankful he paid the cost for me to run into his arms, to come and seek help to ask for his wisdom 
How do we know if we have worldly wisdom or godly wisdom? Well, the second question is, what does it produce? What does it produce in our life? James goes on in verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. By the way, first indicator that you don't have godly wisdom, you boast about how wise you are. Man, I'm so wise. People should listen to me. Like Solomon. People should come from all over the world to hear what I have to say. Called worldly wisdom. If that's where you're at. You know, know, the sign, by the way, of, of godly wisdom. Man, I need so much more wisdom. God, give me more. I don't have enough. I'm so, I, I, my ways are so broken still. You have so much to teach me. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it's, un, it's earthly, which means it's of this world, of the thinking of the culture around us. It's unspiritual, which means it isn't alive to the things of God. It's demonic, which means in opposition to God. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. See, here's what he's saying. He's saying the evidence of worldly wisdom will show up in your relationships. They they will be broken relationships. You'll be surrounded by a path of, of brokenness, of disorder, of division, of practices that don't build each other up. Selfish ambition, just to be clear, is a desire not just to be ambitious because ambition's a good thing. To desire to work hard, to create great, great products, to create great solutions to hard, difficult problems, to see the world become a better place as a result of our, our, our handiwork, the things that God designed us to do way before he ever created the world. That's a good thing. Be ambitious. Selfish ambition, however, is to basically seek after my self-interest, my self-promotion in defiance of God and at the cost of others. It's to seek after self Interest and self-promotion in defiance to God and at the cost of others. It's a a way of saying that the the ends for me, if it's all about me, justify the means of rebelling against God and going my own way or hurting people in the process. Bitter jealousy in this passage can be a a little bit, you might have a hard time understanding because we think jealousy, we think I want what they have, but... But J.A. Moiter, a theologian, says, in this passage, that's not what that means. What it means here is it's a sharpness of spirit in personal relationships. And I don't mean sharp by being bright. I mean sharp by being cutting. Cutting in your relationships. Or an over-concern for one's own position, dignity, or rights. A sharpness of self-interest that easily leads into the formation of parties and cliques. You know what leads to divisions? Pride, selfishness, bitter jealousy. The things that break us up are when we think most about ourselves. When we think about how I can get what I want at the cost of relationship. Family, I, I'm, I said it last week in terms of our words that we, we're going to speak to people, not about people. And if we're going to speak about people, we're going to build each other up so it benefits everybody who listens. If we, if we commit to that, I think it's going to make a, 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 this kind of family a really, oh, people are going to want to be a part of a family where they know they're going to get encouragement and exhortation when they need it, but gonna, we're going to do it in a loving way. Well, wisdom, godly wisdom wants that. It wants a healthy environment where we don't break up into little cliques or divisions. And we, I want that. Consider the results of the worldly wisdom of Adam and Eve. Go back to the garden. What was their response when Eve took and ate of the fruit and gave it to her husband who was with her and ate it as well. Their first response is to run and then to hide and then to cover up and then to blame. 
These are the results of worldly wisdom. Is we run from God or we run from relationship. We, we try to get away from the people instead of run into relationship and fight for unity. Or we, we not only run, but we, we hide. We find ways to, to not let people in, to not let people know us. In my missional community, we've, we've had several times where people have said, you know, I've never been a part of a community that really knew each other like we know each other, that really has gotten into the deeper parts of our hearts and walked through the brokenness of our lives and really helped each other face why we do what we do and help us get healthy in the gospel. And as, as I hear that, I think, man, there's no reason why we shouldn't be a part of a church for a year or two and not have people know us deeply and care for us significantly and want the gospel to transform us. That we can't stay in isolation and hiding. Adam and Eve, they go hide, and then they cover themselves up with fig leaves, which is another way of saying your, your very best works are, are like fig leaves before a holy God. Your desire to go, well, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do more, I'm going to work more, and if I do enough good, maybe God will say, wow, now I can really, I'm really impressed with your fig leaves. And the Bible says your, your fig leaves aren't impressive to him because his, he's most impressed with his work, not yours. We can come back to that in just a bit. Hold that thought. But ask yourself, am I living running from relationship, running from God? By the way, the thing I love about God is he chases after them. And through the entire story of the Bible, he doesn't stop running and pursuing us. He doesn't let you just stay in hiding. He's going to call you out of hiding so you can come into the loving arms of the one who can transform you. He doesn't want you to feel you have to cover up with your good works because he wants to cover you up with his. And then they, not only do they run and they hide, but as soon as God asks them what's, goes on, what's going on, immediately they, they blame one another. Ask yourself, how many times do you, in your, in your defense of your own brokenness or sin, the ways in which you've gone to worldly wisdom instead of godly wisdom, how many times have you said, yeah, but it was them. It was my parents that you gave me or my... My parents, you didn't give me, or the words that were spoken over me, or the words that weren't spoken over me, or the things she did, or the thing he did, instead of, no, God, I need to come to you and get changed. I'm going to stop pointing the finger elsewhere. I want to point the finger at me and say, I need help. I need help. Ask yourself, does your pursuit of wisdom look more like Adam and Eve's in the consequences of their pride? I remember... When I was seven, seventh grade, I don't have a lot of memories of my past, but I think it's because I was thinking forward, and, but I'm learning to stop and think backward a lot more often. Family, as a church, I want to encourage us to take more time to remember the past and what God has done and his grace and mercy in our life because I think the more we remember what he's done, the more hope we have for what he'll do. And so I'm learning to look back a lot more. And as I was thinking about preparing for today, uh, my, my mind went back to this day my mom and I were having a fight and I was a pretty difficult son I was the kid who was always right you know that kid and uh, my, my mom and I'm a good debater so that wasn't easy to live with you can talk to Janie about that uh, still growing in grace in that area but I, I we, we had a tough relationship my mom and I and my mom's a godly woman I remember coming into talked to her in her bedroom one day and I found her on her knees crying out to God for my salvation. She prayed for me all the time. So thankful for her. And we, we've been reconciled now, but this day we were having a pretty, pretty big fight and I said, I, I hate living here. I hate being with you. 
I don't want to be in this house anymore. And she said, well, then you can move. You can leave if you want. And she grabbed a suitcase and said, if you'd like to pack, you can pack and go. And I grabbed the suitcase and I left home. And I walked across the street to my friend Dave's house. <laughs> and we put on one of our favorite Pink Floyd albums. Another brick in the wall. Teacher, leave those kids alone. Some of you, I just dated you. You're like, I have no idea who Pink Floyd is. I know, because you've been so destroyed by the music of today. You need to back up and find some good music. <laughs> And we sat there and listened and talked about how we don't need authority and we don't, you know, parents are just that and this and that and this. And all of a sudden, I hear, Jeff, Dave's mom yells down the stairs, your mom's here. And I walk up the stairs and godly wisdom was standing there. And she said, I love you. Please forgive me. I haven't been treating you well and my words have not been kind and I want you home. She called worldly wisdom out of the basement to meet godly wisdom. Just ask you, do you have relationships like that where you've been living with worldly wisdom guiding your path which leads to you to run away or to tear down others, to lead, leads you to discord in your relationships? I just want you to listen for godly wisdom crying out from the top of the stairs. Proverbs says that wisdom cries out in the streets. Wisdom is crying out from the gospel today. So how do we know if it's gospel wisdom? James said it in verse 13, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. My mom's life was a demonstration of the gospel. Her grace, her mercy, her, her willingness to come and reach out versus run away. James describes this in verse 17. This is what the wisdom from above is like. It's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Well, you just stop and think about your relationships with your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend, with your coworkers, with your housemates, with your family, your neighbors, dorm mates, whoever may come to your mind. And I just want you to ask, does this describe your relationships? Pure. See, purity is a heart that sees people as image bearers of God to love, but not as objects to use or manipulate or control. Purity, when they look at another, like I said last week, sees the very image of God, though marred and distorted by sin, sees that God made this person in his image to be a reminder of his dignity. How do you see people? For some of you who struggle with pornography, the reason why you're diving into that is because it's a way to objectify people. It's a way to make people exist for your means. Purity starts in the heart, not on the screen. It starts with how you perceive people. How are you perceiving people in your relationships? Have they become an object, a means to an end instead of the very end itself? That God made you for relationships. He didn't make you to use relationships for what you want. How have people become to you? Are you pure? 
in how you see people. It's peaceable. It's committed to a relationship that says, I will fight against division. I will fight against separation. I will fight for reconciliation. I am not okay if we're not okay. Does that define your relationships? It's gentle. It has a tenderness to care well and deeply for another, to win each other over through the way we speak and the way we love. It's gentle. Some of you know that we had a couple in our church who several months ago when they were doing an ultrasound found out that the, the baby's heart was in the wrong place and its brain was not going to work and they were, they were counseled to abort the baby and they said, no, we don't believe in that. We're going to trust that God can heal and we gathered around and began to pray for this baby and sure enough, later on when this baby, when they did the ultrasound, the baby's heart was in the right place, its mind was working, everything was right. And of course, she was born a little early as a little preemie and they brought her into our offices this last week as a, a, a picture of God's miraculous power. It was beautiful, it was a miracle. And we wanna, we wanna honor God in the way he does these things around our family. We've seen several miraculous healings around here. And so we wanna, we wanna say, God, thank you for that. But when I saw that little baby, I thought, oh, she's so precious and so tender. And so I don't even wanna, I feel like I'd crush her if I picked her up. And if I were to pick her up, I'd just do it so gently. And as I, as I think about how I would hold that little baby, I think, is that how I hold my brothers and sisters? Is that how I handle my words? Is that how I think about my interactions? That I want to be so careful because every single one of us is like that little preemie baby, that there's a part of you that's still very much like a child that needs to be cared for and loved because there's a brokenness in each one of you. And we've got to say, hey, let's be careful. God's still bringing healing into each other's lives. Let's handle one another with gentleness. That's what wisdom does. And wisdom is open to reason, a willingness to say, I'm wrong. Are you the person who comes to the room and goes, I know I'm the smartest in the room, so you probably all are wrong and I'm right. And when someone confronts you, your immediate thought is, they must be wrong because I'm right and now I've got to convince them that they're wrong. Or is, the, is it possible that you might actually be wrong? I did a live uh, Facebook and Periscope event this last week for the, the release of my new book and Justin was interviewing me Justin Anderson, and uh, at one point he said, or so, someone brought in a question online and he read it, and the question was, Jeff, what areas of the, of the gospel, what areas of life do you have a hard time speaking the gospel to in your own church? And I thought about it, and my, honestly, my first thought was, none. <laughs> and of course, I'm preparing for godly wisdom, you know, which doesn't boast in how it knows everything. And so I'm like, that can't be the right answer. <laughs> and in that moment, what I heard, this was really cool because I love when the Spirit does this. Because I'm like, I know that can't be the right answer. It doesn't sound like wisdom. And uh, the Spirit said, you don't know because you don't see. Because you have blindness still, Jeff, in your life. You don't know how to answer that question because you don't know where you aren't preaching the gospel to certain things because you're not seeing where you need to preach the gospel to certain things because you're still blind in those things. And so I said, like, here's my answer. I would bet it's the things I can't see and that I need others around me to tell me, Jeff, you're lacking in this. You're missing something here. You don't see the area in which you, you, yeah, you emphasize this, but you, you miss this. And it's probably the area I either don't struggle or the area that I am really struggling and I don't want to face. I need to be open to reason. Wisdom says, I don't know it all. I still have so much to learn. And I need you to speak into my life. I need friends who love me enough to talk to me directly about my weaknesses and my blindness. It's full of mercy. 
which is an eagerness to forgive and not keep a record of wrong. See, worldly wisdom says, no, but see, if I have a group of people that I could say I'm not going to forgive, that gives me power over them. That gives me a sense of condemnation. I can look down on them and keep reminding them over and over and over again of how many times they've failed. But, but world, godly wisdom doesn't do that. Godly wisdom doesn't hold a record of wrongs. It's eager to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness. And it has good fruits, an active life that seeks the good of others and not just itself. It's impartial. It's willing to love all people without discrimination. It's sincere. It's not double-minded. It's yes is yes. It's no is no. It doesn't wear a bunch of facades. It doesn't wear a mask for each people group. It's, this is the same person over and over and over and over again, wherever you go. Ask yourself in your relationships, do these words describe how you relate to God and how you relate to others? Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And so you might be here at this point going like, okay, we got it, Jeff. This is like a, a worldly wisdom room. Every one of us has got plenty of evidence for how we have gone to the world for our wisdom and it's produced all kinds of brokenness in our life. Amen? Can, I just, can we agree on that? Because I know that's where I'm at. Maybe I'm the only one there, but I know even yesterday when I'm out working on my yard and I'm getting really, really tired because my kids are inside playing video games and I want them to come out and help and I'm grumbling, I'm complaining inside going, man, I don't remember a time when my dad was out working in his yard and we were sitting inside playing video games and I'm doing all this stuff in my heart and my mind. It's like all of a sudden, it's like, like even this morning after I got done preaching, when we went to the communion, that's what God brought to my mind. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Worldly wisdom right there in the yard, right before I'm going to come preach. Thank you, Jesus. I need your help. Right? Maybe that's where you're at too. So where do we go to get wisdom? Well, here's the key. You can't create this kind of wisdom. This wisdom isn't something you conjure up because it's from above. Godly wisdom, gospel wisdom, which produces gospel fruit, is from above. Because it's heavenly in nature. It's not, it's not of this broken world. It's of the, the eternal realms of perfection where God dwells in glorious, inapproachable light. And yet through Jesus, we can come to him and get everything we need from him. It's heavenly. And it's not something you earn or create or develop because it's a very gift of God that you get wisdom. It's not something you can come up with. So that's where we go. We go to the heavenly realms. We, we look to another place to find it. I was with my missional community this last week having a conversation about just kind of the, this world we live in and how we, we, we get our eyes fixed on the wrong things. We, we, we set our eyes on the things that are below instead of the things that are above. We, and, and the writer of Hebrews says we're supposed to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame so that he might be seated at the right hand of God the Father. And what does that mean? It means everything that Jesus did in his life and his death and his resurrection is for us our means of coming to God. And as he sits at the right hand of God the Father, he becomes for you the very wisdom of God for you. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 1.24 that Jesus is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God came to earth to live a wise life, a gospel-centered, a, a gospel-hope-filled life that says the kingdom of God is ready to be given to you. The rule of God can be experienced in your life. You can experience life of another kind on this planet right here and right now. And when Jesus went to the cross, wisdom went to the cross in exchange for foolishness that was ours, our sin. 
And when he went to the cross, not only did he die to forgive us of our sins, but he rose again on the third day to go to the right hand of God the Father in power and authority and victory and give us the ability to become wise. See, here's what's a beauty, family. I want you to hear this. Jesus is right now in the heavenly realms, which is where eternity is, is being experienced. You know, when the Bible talks about eternity, it's not talking about what happens after you die. It's talking about another realm of life, a different kind of life, a life without end, a life that is full and abundant and life as it ought to be. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ that he died for, the, for your sins, grants you forgiveness, rose again on the third day to overcome all that comes against you in this world, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. When you believe that is for you, what the Bible tells you is that all that is Jesus and all that Jesus has done is yours in the heavenly realms. Paul says it this way, that you are co-heirs with Christ, that you, uh, you are you're co-heirs of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. So when I was with our mission of community, I said, my concern is that so often we lose sight of what's really true for us. The Bible says that you and I are holy, pure, forgiven, Loved. And you go, yeah, but I don't live like I'm whole, pure, forgiven, and loved. I know it's because you've been, you've been looking at the world instead of the heavens. Because in the heavenly realm, you're holy. Yeah, but Jeff, I don't live a holy life. God's word trumps your life. God's word trumps your sin. God's word trumps everything you did this week. Jesus, the word of God, the wisdom of God, is for you everything you need. And when you don't live like you believe it, it doesn't change it. You're still in the heavenly realms considered holy, forgiven, pure. You go, Jeff, I wasn't pure. I just looked at stuff I shouldn't have. In the heavenly realms, you're pure. Why don't you fix your eyes there? And if you start to believe that that's true of you, you live differently because you live out what's true in heaven on earth. That's what he prayed, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you want this family? This is wisdom for you. You get to have the wisdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ right now representing you before God the Father to pour out into your life stuff that you could never earn, stuff that you could never come up with, stuff that you could never accomplish. You know why we live with purity? Because we realize Jesus, the wisdom of God, is pure. And when he went to the cross, he became for me the means by which I become pure. And when my eyes are set on that reality in the heavenly realms, I want to live a pure life. I want to look at people the way God looks at me. Not as an object, but as a person who he's deeply in love with, as a child he gave life to. You know why? I can be peaceable because Jesus is my peace. A harvest sown in righteousness in peace. James says that this righteousness, this harvest of righteousness is Jesus' work and it enables us to have peace with God. How do I have peace with one another? I start by saying, I have peace with God because of what Jesus has done for me. And if he would be willing to suffer for me so that I might have peace with God, I should be willing to suffer for others that they might be at peace with God and man. So I fix my eyes with what's true in heaven. This wisdom is from above, not below. And how do I grow in gentleness? I realize that Jesus didn't come to crush the wounded or condemn the sinner, but to save the sinner and heal the broken. And when I believe that and see that and I fix my eyes on what's happening in the heavenly realms with Jesus' grace and kindness over me who deserves condemnation, who deserves to be crushed. Instead, I see that that's not how God treats me and so now I can be gentle to others and so I fix my eyes on what's true up there so I can live differently down here. And he was open to reason with us. I mean, you, I'm reading the Old Testament right now. The number of times where, where Moses is going, no, God, don't kill him. 
And if you do it, then all the nations are going to think you aren't for them. And I don't know why God even engages in the conversation, but he does. And I think it's his way of saying, I want to reason with you. Come, let us reason together. I want to hear your heart. And Jesus reasons with the Father right now on your behalf going, Father, no, 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 no. I died for them. They're forgiven. He's our mediator right now before God the Father so that he might reason with the Father on our behalf so that the Father would pour out love and grace and mercy on us. And that's how I can reason with others and listen to what people have to say to me and even confront me. And he's full of mercy. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing so that I can cry out for my brothers and sisters. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he's full of good fruits. Every single thing Jesus did was good, right, and perfect. The most amazing life ever. And he's not just our example. He is our life. If you want the wisdom of God, you must get Jesus. For apart from him, all you'll have is the wisdom of this world. And he's sincere. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Never changing. And his love never fails. Family, do you want some godly wisdom? Do you need it? I do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that we have in Christ. Thank you for the access to real wisdom that transforms lives. Thank you for the life you have given us in Christ and the life you still want us to experience in Christ. I pray for our family, Lord, that we would, we would say no to worldly wisdom that leads to disunity and disorder and vile practices and all kinds of brokenness. And we would look upward into the heavenly realms and say, I want eternity now. I want the wisdom of God now. I want my relationships changed now. I need you now. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. We pray this in your name. Amen.